everything in nature is connected. And somehow, when it comes to corporate farming, the industrial production of food, we have largely forgotten about this connection. In sustainable agriculture, this connection is fostered. And today, we are talking about the relationship between animals, soil and trees. It's called silvopasture. Farmland ecology, the relationship between animals, soil and trees. That's our topic here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. In nature, everything supports and feeds one another. There is no waste, only relationships. It's a system, an endless web of life and connections. Organic farms know of the strength of this system and actively cultivate it by inviting nature onto the farm and seeing the farm as a part of the overall ecology of the place. Today, we want to talk about the connection between animals, soil and trees – and what a researcher has discovered. The system is called silvopasture. And we have one of the top experts on the subject on our show today. Farmland ecology, the relationship between animals, soil and trees. All that and more coming up in just a minute here on An Organic Conversation. I'm your host, Helge Helberg, and this show is made possible by Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. We're talking about farmland ecology, the relationship between animals, soil, and trees, and what we can learn, even if we're not farmers, because it's an absolutely interesting 
part of the web of life. We're speaking with Steve Gabriel today, the author of Silvopasture, a guide to managing grazing animals, forage crops, and trees in a temperate farm ecosystem. He's joining us today from Mecklenburg. Mecklenburg, actually. <laughs> That's the German way of saying it. Mecklenburg, New York. Steve, do we have you on the line? Yeah. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm great. How are you? Good, good. I was just stumbling over your location you're calling from. Um, there's a place just outside of northern Germany, Mecklenburg. It's a, it's a state, actually. Uh, Mecklenburg. I didn't know of Mecklenburg, New York. What's Mecklenburg like? Well, it's a quiet little town uh, in the central Finger Lakes, uh, right in the middle of New York State. And um, it's absolutely gorgeous. Rolling hills, lots of lakes and waters and gorges. <laughs> water. Yeah. Nice. Sounds beautiful. You are the author of Silver Pasture, of that new book. I mean, you're also the co-author of Farming in the Woods. So somehow the, the world of trees and woods and how they interact with the overall ecology of a place has been your passion. How, how did you get into that? So I, um, I got into this through exploring in college, you know, first looking at forestry school. I, I, I guess Uh, the reason I got to that interest in college was because as a young boy, uh, I spent a lot of time in the woods and just had an affinity for it and had some great experiences, you know, running around the neighborhood growing up and also, um, camping trips and things like that with my father in the, in the Adirondack park. And so just really loved the space and, and wanted to pursue, you know, studies in something environmental. Uh, I thought forestry was, was the ticket, but found it was very, reduced down to a lot of math and numbers and looking at how much money could be extracted from the forest. And frankly, that wasn't really the way I wanted to proceed. And so it led me on sort of a diversion where I did some travel abroad and just kind of looked for different ways that humans related to the woods in not just purely economic terms. Hmm. And, um, and that really led me to agroforestry and to permaculture and to some different writers and thinkers uh, around those ideas of how the woods can be valued and and treasured and also be productive for uh, for farmers and homesteaders and landowners. And I was surprised going through your book about the the reverence you have for trees. Knowing your background now, it makes perfect sense. But when we talk about agriculture, and in this case, trees or grazing domestic domesticated animals, there is a high focus on production, which makes sense. Farmers, you know, have a hard time making a living. And so it is important that it is fostering productivity. But you are bringing kind of this, this awe for forests in all their beauty and in all their value, even when it comes to production, to your work. Is that an overstatement? No, not at all. And I actually think that that reverence and awe are really the foundations of good farming. Um, and actually, I, I think that the sort of corporate uh, industrial agricultural model that we've been kind of overwhelmed with um, loses that aspect. But when I talk to any individual farmer, uh, love and passion are what drive them to get up every day and do the work. And I think that that's the foundation. If we don't, if we don't have that kind of relationship with our, with our farm ecosystems, then we're really missing out on much bigger and we're not going to really be motivated to continue to go day after day we're missing on on out on something for for the farm and for the product of course productivity but really also for our lives right isn't that the same approach anyone should approach any part of life whatever you do whether you're a farmer or not <laughs> yeah i would hope so i think <laughs> I that's what gives, so me, gives me uh, motivation every day yeah. yes <laughs> 
Let's explain the term silvopastures. Did you come up with that, or when was that coined? Um, well, silvo, silvopasture is really combining two words, um, silvo or silvix, which is a, a word for forestry, an old word for forestry, and pasture, of course, meaning grazing. So it's really a combination of those two things. Um, and um, it first sort of showed up when agroforestry writing was, was happening in North America. Um, it's hard to pinpoint the exact day and, uh, you know, date, and I don't think it matters too much. Sure. And, and from the outset, I want to point out, too, that this named practice is also something that if we look back historically, uh, globally, um, we would just simply call it farming if we look far enough back because the integration of livestock and, and trees is not a new thing. Even if we name it, it's something that uh, actually harkens back to something that's centuries old. Yeah, and, and maybe thousands of years old if it wasn't planned, right? It's, it seems like the official definition of combining woodlands or trees, also known as forestry, and the grazing of domesticated animals in a mutually beneficial way. Um, if we didn't put a fence around either and kept them apart, separate from one another, isn't that how nature would engage with one another anyway? Absolutely, and I think indigenous people around the world um, who had deeper connections to, to nature as their land base and as their sustenance saw that, and when domesticated animals started to be a part of culture, mm -hmm. uh, lots of different types of cultures, then, then of course, uh, this, this whole notion that we clear the woods out of the way and then do something productive with the land is really, um, is really at the heart of, of both books. Uh, this kind of problematic relationship where we see the woods in the way of something productive. Um, and I, I think that's a relatively new perspective. And I think, ironically, the fact that we have to define silvopasture means that we've lost uh, a lot about uh, that relationship uh, and that understanding that, that actually um, trees in the landscape have many, many more benefits than, than trees not in the landscape. And those two books are Farming in the Woods and also the new book Silvo Pasture, A Guide to Managing Grazing Animals, Forage Crops and Trees in a Temperate Farm Ecosystem. The author is Steve Gabriel, who's joining us today from Mecklenburg, New York, a researcher in regard to the relationship between animals, soil and trees. And that's our focus in this week's edition of An Organic Conversation on Farmland Ecology. I'm your host, Helge Helberg. Steve, when, what's the goal with this approach? When, you, when you're basically reintroducing nature instead of clear-cutting um, and creating a meadow, you are literally letting animals roam through grazing land that has trees on, on it. It's beautiful, actually. It's, it, it, is really, it feels so natural and, and right seeing that instead of you know, a thousand acres of clear-cut um, grazing lands. Uh, this is really how it just it, it touched me to see those photos. Um, but what's the goal? What are, you, what are you trying to achieve through silver pasture management? Well, I think the overall goal um, is to look at this beneficial relationship between these, these three elements, you know, the livestock themselves, the trees, and the forages, and, and see a system that benefits all of those simultaneously. Um, and, you know, when I think of wh what you just mentioned about clear cuts, I think of places like in the Amazon where forests continue to be cleared so that we can grow things like corn and soy so that we can feed beef cows. And all of that uh, requires a lot of transportation, and, and those, those pieces are all separated and in, in far distant lands away from each other. And so 
really what we're talking about is a production system for for meat or dairy um, that brings all those elements together where the food is, is on the land base and the animals are rotating through. And, and by rotating the animals through, we start building soil health, we start sequestering carbon, we have really good uh, growth on our trees, and we have multiple yields. And so the, the farmer really benefits from managing that complexity because the animals are better supported in their comfort and their health because the landscape is building uh, wealth biologically every season. The soil is a little bit more rich. Um, the plants are more diverse. The habitat is increasing. And because the system is, is much better buffered against extreme weather events. So when we have hot, dry summers, the animals have shade. When we have really wet summers, the civil pasture can better buffer against heavy rains and, and downpours. Um, and so it, it provides this really robust system that um, is, is almost laughably simple, but also laughably complex at the same time. And, and that's the trick. Yeah. Um, There's a paradox. It reminds me of uh, when, when a dairy gets to a thousand cows, before that, manure can be a beautiful fertilizer for the right mm -hmm. amount of acreage. Uh, at that point, if it's a you know, mass production of milk on concrete, uh, all of a sudden that manure becomes an environmental problem. A pollutant. So we are we are shifting basically. The more we industrialize the food system, we're shifting from resources to all of these segmented problems, and you're bringing it back basically uh, to combining it, which is more ecological, cheaper actually for the farmer, and beneficial with that for everyone. Yeah, and you have. I mean, it's amazing to think about it, the dairies around here that still you know, truck in their grain from far away. They Then they accumulate all this manure in their feedlots, and then they have to truck it back out to the field and apply it as fertilizer. When you're doing a grazing system, that's all happening simultaneously because as the animals are moving, they're fertilizing, they're spreading it evenly, it's being integrated in the soil, and it's never a, never a pollution problem. Um, it's actually a benefit to the whole farm ecosystem. Amazing. What have you seen applying this? It's every time we, we take a look a close look on nature, we see this interdependent system, and what have you seen reintroducing it? Uh, do you have numbers or pictures or, or lands, stories, where where land was reintroduced to silver pasture, where trees maybe have been reintroduced and it has ta totally taken off? What what have you experienced? Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot. I, I'm, I'm fortunate to be in a part of the world where civil pasture is something that many farmers around here are taking up and exploring and, and being honest with the fact that we're learning as we go. We don't have all the answers. Um, but my, one of my first visits was to a, a friend, uh, Brett Chedzoy's farm up the road. He works for the extension here in New York State and is a forester and also is a grazer. And so he was rotating his beef herd through this uh, this tree system that was uh, mainly uh, black locust and black walnut. And what struck me at first was just how beautiful it looked um, and and how many multiple sort of benefits were coming from all those interactions. And what I thought was cool about his his approach was that he basically grew those black locusts to be rot-resistant fence posts that he could harvest and then use to make fencing to fence in his cattle. So, you know, there's a nice kind of cyclical thing where He's producing his on-site resources. The, the cattle are fertilizing those trees. Those trees are shading the cattle. And eventually those are thinned out, um, and they provide another product which he can use on his farm or he can sell. Locust posts have a really high market value around here. Um, 
we have another farm around here that is a uh, is a cider orchard doing doing hard apple cider, and they use they've used a lot of different animals, but um, they rotate animals through to deal with pest issues, um, to fertilize, to uh, till up the soil, um, and and to provide more yields when you know they're waiting for that apple crop that only comes once a year, and so they're they're stacking different uh, production systems in the same space, um, and. And I've seen, you know, great silvopasture systems um, with all sorts of different animals, you know, cows, sheep, goats, uh, poultry, pigs, this kind of thing. So it's very flexible to the type of production systems and the type of land base that someone wants to wants to work with. Uh, and of course, the palette of tree species and and forages is is wide and diverse. And so it's nice because it can be really tailored to the specific needs of a farm. In a lot of different ways. So, if you want to grow apple trees and start an orchard and, and instead of mowing, you know, graze it, you can do that. Or if you want to just have the trees for the benefit of shading the animals, you can do that as well uh, and not worry about having to prune them as much as with the apples. So, there's a lot of different considerations. That's one of the reasons it felt really poignant to, to try to put a book together as a guide to try to think through all these kind of considerations because there is some upfront planning and design. Uh, but once things get rolling, it's really more and more you get to kind of sit back and watch and enjoy and see the landscape really take shape. And we want to talk about that design and what it takes, like how is it being done in a minute after the break. But before we take that break, um, I want to ask you how much openness or resistance you're saying you're, you're blessed to be in a part of the country. Again, you're calling in from Mecklenburg, New York, upstate New York, um, where this system is embraced, it seems like it's understood and the benefits are clear and ha have shown themselves and people, farmers, ranchers um, are, are embracing it. What is your sense of, of where this movement lies, though, um, or where it stands? Are we, is this an, a national movement? Is this a, a term that is now being marketable even? That, you know, if that meat comes from a silver pasture farm that that could be a value that consumers recognize as as an integrated agricultural approach someday someday i hope so <laughs> so uh I, while i say that we have lots of interesting farms doing work around here it's still a small percentage uh but the the movement is is actually international and it's if anything it's more prevalent in other countries it's just starting to take hold with a lot of other sort of tree-based uh, systems in, in North America, and and so the adoption and the interest is, is huge. It's very it's very monumental, but the actual practice on the ground is still pretty small, and there is resistance, um, you know, on on both sides. Sort of people wondering uh, what the economics are and is it going to be profitable. And and I think people have sometimes a hard time wrapping around their heads around thinking uh, about trees and sort of systems in a 5, 10, or 20-year scope versus, you know, we're used to annual production, which gets that return very quickly. Um, so there's always challenges. Uh, what I'm really optimistic about is that grass-fed um, meats have, have just really yep. skyrocketed. They, they're doubling every year in sales. And we're going to kind of piggyback off of that because we're basically talking about grass-fed plus trees. And And the benefit of that and what I was most excited about in the book was really to see that um, if we want to look at ways to produce meat and, and dairy and other animal products in a way that really genuinely sequesters carbon, 
we really have to add trees to the picture. And so it's sort of like grass-fed meat uh, plus. And that's kind of how we're going to move forward. In I love it. And so. we want to talk about that in just a minute of why does that sequester more carbon than otherwise. We're speaking with Steve Gabriel, the author of a new book, Silvopasture. And if you've never heard that term, I can almost assure you that you will in the future. Silvopasture, a guide to managing grazing animals, forage crops and trees in a temperate farm ecosystem. Uh, there's a website, wellspringforestfarm.com. For more information, wellspringforestfarm, all one word, .com, or farmingthewoods.com, farmingthewoods.com, which is also the second book, the other book that Steve Gabriel has written, Farming in the Woods. He's joining us today from Mecklenburg, New York. And Steve, stay on the line. We'll take a quick break. This is an organic conversation. We're talking about farmland ecology and why it should matter to all of us, even if we are consumers, the relationship between animals, soil, and trees. This is an organic conversation, and we'll be right back with so much more. Stay tuned. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm speaking with Steve Gabriel, the author of an amazing book, Silvopasture, a guide to managing grazing animals, forage crops, and trees in a temperate farm ecosystem. And even though that sounds maybe fairly technical and only for somebody who has grazing animals or forage crops or trees in a temperate farm ecosystem, I was blown away by the reverence that Steve brings to the topic, which is all based on reintegrating nature or nature's principles to our way of living and our way of food production. Steve, uh, before the break, we talked about, you talked about sequestering carbon, that this system needs trees, it needs animals. Can you talk about quickly what is sequestering carbon? We had shows on that, but it's a while back. And just for our listeners to refresh that, what is the process of sequestering carbon and how is it being done on a silver pasture environment? Yeah, so sequestration is basically uh, that through the act of photosynthesis, which is, of course, the phenomenon that plants can convert you know, sunlight into energy and materials, um, you're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere uh, and sequestering it either in the, the plant tissue, the plant tissue itself um, during the life of that plant or, or down into the soil. Um, and you can sequester carbon both in, in biomass, which is the plant material, and, and down in the ground. So... Uh, The way to think about this is with silvopasture is that uh, when we do grazing in a rotational grazing system, uh, we do uh, increase the biomass productivity of pasture. It does get pulled down into the roots of those grasses and forbs, 
and it does get some of it does get stored in the soil. Um, how's how's that being done? Like when which which uh, animal or tree or grass root would do that? Like what's the cycle there? All of them do it. Yeah, everyone does it. So it's part of the <laughs> uh, as an animal, for instance, eats off of the the head of a clump of grass. Uh, there's a response underground where the roots of those grasses also die off and they slough into the soil, and that is carbon in the soil. And that mm -hmm. can be stored for a short amount of time or a long amount of time. It sort of depends on the type of soil you have and the climate and all these different things. Mm -hmm. uh, so grasses, you can think of in a simple terms as very quick cycles of carbon, and they can quickly put carbon into the soil. And that can be a great thing to get us started, but really when we want to look at long-term storage, because sure. as plants die... Mm -hmm and respire, they put carbon back into the atmosphere. We want to also think about longer-term storages. And trees, you really can't beat a tree. You think about that woody uh, material, both above ground and below ground, because they, they actually sequester many yeah. species, a lot of soil in their root systems underground. Is, is that can be a real long-term storage. And so, 20, 30, so, 40, 100 years, right? Or more, yeah. And if you cut that tree down and actually build a house with it, it could be centuries if it's a well-built house, you know? Mm. So... Um, so there's kind of a whole life cycle analysis to do, but at the end of the day, uh, when we look at comparing just good managed grazing systems to silvopasture, kind of managed grazing plus trees, silvopasture can sequester um, somewhere between 6 to 33 times uh, the amount of carbon. And that's um, those figures are from a project called Drawdown, which Paul Hawken uh, authored or edited. Uh -huh. Yeah. And uh, Eric Tonsmeyer did a lot of the agroforestry research. He also wrote a great book called The Carbon Farming Solution. And um, Eric was really great in the book to provide some of that, some of that data and information about how the system. And, and Project Drawdown ranks the top 100 uh, ways that we could be uh, improving the climate um, uh, through all sorts of different actions, like reducing our food waste, uh, improving education, um, um, you know, recycling, these kind of things. And, and out of all the farming systems, silvopasture was number one, uh, and it was number nine out of all the systems globally that we could, that we could think about. So it ranks very high. So the 36-time the increase of sequestering, the ability to sequester carbon, atmospheric carbon, into the soil is mainly from the trees, right, provided by the trees? We think so. Um, I think it's really, the grasses do a lot too. I think the trees help kind of stabilize it over the long term. Yeah. Does the, does, really, do the, at the end of the day, it's sort of stacking. Uh -huh. You know, we're, we're increasing the vertical space above ground and below ground that we're actually uh, storing carbon in, and I think that's a big factor, too. And in, instead for me to ask, you know, w how much does the grass store and how much does the tree store, do you know of a connection where the tree actually helps the grass to store more? Yeah, it's that's <laughs> it's very complicated territory you're waiting. <laughs> I know. Um, I'm ready to go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we find when we start to look at those specific interactions is that it really depends on the climate, on the ecosystem, and on the, the species themselves. So, so many tree species and, and plant species have evolved uh, relationships, and part of that relationship is also with mycorrhizal fungi in the soil, which mm -hmm. forested and tree systems are much richer in. And actually, there's uh, some research that shows that the mycorrhizal fungi are potentially one of the bigger storages or cyclers of carbon oh. in the soil. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we've barely scratched the surface about what we know. Um, but we can really clearly draw that line again, that when we add trees to these grazing systems, we get kind of a net, a net gain. So I say, why not? 
<laughs> yeah, I was thinking of, you know, do the leaves of the trees create a mulch for the grass to protect it more and stimulate growth that we found? Or there's a nutrient in the leaf or there's a, yeah. you know, through the roots of the trees, water gets sucked up to the surface more, which or has a greater water capacity, uh, holding capacity, and that helps the grass or vice versa. Um, you know, some these things that if we look at an acre of grass and an acre of trees, we get X amount of carbon sequestered. And when we put them together, all of a sudden we get XX. Uh, yes. You're saying that's true, and we just don't even know yet exactly how it works. Is that? Or, or, or we can look at specific examples. Let me just give you one uh -huh. um, real quick. Is the, one of the older silvopasture systems in the world, again, wasn't called silvopasture, it was just called farming, was the, the Hesa and the Montado uh, in parts of Spain and Portugal. Mm -hmm. And these are trees, these are different oak species that are grazed, they, they're like on a savanna spacing, so very wide spacing, and then there's forages in, in between. Uh -huh. so lots of research that's gone on, and these systems, some of them are centuries and centuries old, uh, some are over a thousand years old. So very well established, these very old oak trees. Uh, some are harvested for the acorns, which feed pigs, and some... Sometimes the oak, the cork oak is harvested for cork. Mm -hmm. um, so very old systems, when you look at the carbon values, what they found is that those oaks, uh, these are dryland climate systems, those oaks tap deep into the, the water table, down deep in the soil, and they do this process called hydraulic lift, yeah. where they actually pull water from deep down the soil, bring it up to the surface, and they found that all the forages close to those trees within the root Uh, zone of those trees would benefit as a result, and of course, then the grazing animals benefit. Um, and it basically, it's moderating the, the entire microclimate of the ecosystem. Yes. So there's definitely relationships there, especially in dry climates, where we can really see that that correlation show up really strongly. Beautiful. Um, we're speaking with Steve Gabriel, the author of a new book on silvopasture, a guide to managing grazing animals, forage crops, and trees in a temperate farm ecosystem. Wellspringforestfarm.com, the website farmingthewoods.com, another book, Farming in the Woods, that Steve wrote, and silvopasturebook.com, three websites. He's joining us today from Mecklenburg, New York, upstate New York. He works at the Cornell University for the Small Farms Program as the agroforestry extension specialist, and we have him on the show today to talk about that relationship. Steve, how is it being done? What questions are you asking when you work with a piece of land? And how can a lay person or even a you know hobby gardener um, benefit from your approach or method? Is that is that really more based on large-scale agroforestry grazing systems? Or can you say, if you have you know a large yard, look at the relationship between trees and grass? And how would you approach that? Yeah, well, we uh, our farm is relatively small. We have about 10 acres, and we um, we started out just grazing three or four of it. Um, so there's if you're grazing animals um, with that are ruminants like sheep. That's what we have. You know, you do need some acreage, but even on a backyard scale with poultry, um, we could be thinking about these these questions um, and looking at these relationships. Um, and so one of the things I encourage uh, folks who are thinking about this to start with is is to really recognize that your existing landscape, as it is, has a lot of value. And sometimes we think that uh, as humans we need to go into the landscape and start to remove a bunch of things and change everything, and then, then it will be valuable. Mm -hmm. um, but we can really start by just seeing what's there and what's valuable. Um, and, and one example I'll give is on our farm, 
2016, we had historic drought. It was the driest it's been since recorded time. And we ran out of pasture. We literally didn't have anything to feed our sheep. Mm. Um, lots of other farms around us were either having to sell their animals or buy hay, which is a really odd thing to have to do in the middle of the summer. Um, we let our sheep feed on honeysuckle, multiflorose, these kind of really common, weedy, invasive plants, plants people love to hate and love to get rid of. <laughs> and I'm really thankful we didn't get rid of all of them because they're what kept our farm afloat that season. Mm-hmm. And so we're actually looking at doing some research now to understand the nutritional value of these forages because the animals really seem to take to them and they actually really want to mix their diet up between woody forages and, and, and the, the grasses and things that we find on the ground. So we can diversify that and kind of work with the existing landscape that we have. Uh, and then the second thing I think as a general rule that's good is to really get to know what your local ecosystem kind of character is like uh, and sort of mimic that on your landscape. So if you tend to have a forests or trees of a certain type or you tend to, you know, your site's very wet, you can look at wetlands you know, as an inspiration. And we, we look to nature as an inspiration for how we might go about designing things and try to work with it as much as we can and not try to, like, wipe the slate clean and start over because that's a lot of energy, and, and, and nature's always solving problems, I think, at a much better rate than we, we can ever do. <laughs> so it's good to start there. <laughs> that is actually a great comment you made. Is For you and your work, with as much reverence as you bring to this work and really with an interest in nature first and foremost and then, you know, looking at food systems maybe secondly, but you're coming from a forest-loving background, is this a return to nature and the natural order, or do you actually see this as an improvement through, through active management? Well, I think, um, I think fundamentally there, this kind of question of, of calling something nature poses a challenge to us. Yes, right? Because absolutely. if we name nature, then we say that, well, that's something that's separate from us. And what I actually see it as is, you know, people don't necessarily see domesticated animals as nature, but I do. And I think that the more we see ourselves in a farm ecosystem as part of a natural system, the more we see domesticated animals as natural as nature, um, the more we recognize that there's no separation between these two things. And so at the end of the day, what I do want to see is that my sheep are really happy on the landscape, but also that the birds are really happy. Um, and silvo pasture, again, brings brings those two together beautifully because the black locust tree that we plant in our pasture, the sheep love the shade. They love to eat it. It's actually very nutritious for them. It's the same nutritional value as alfalfa, which is one of the higher quality forages. And we have five or six different bird species that love to um, uh, eat the flowers or nest in the branches or just use it as a perch. Uh, and so There's all this symbiosis, what we might think of as wild or nature, like the birds, and what we might think of as sort of domesticated or human-made, the animals, they can just come together. And the more I get into this, the more I can just see those kind of <laughs> false divisions, you know, fizzle away. Yeah, that's beautiful, because even, even in the connection between grazing animals, forage crops, and trees, there are entire ecosystems connected to those of course when you when you talk about birds and i'm thinking of the african savanna uh, it's possible at least that there's a bird that eats the parasite off the sheep's back right like we we get benefits that we don't even directly see often when we when we reintroduce the the entire web of life 
Yeah, it's funny you mention that because actually last year we had a resident uh, pair of flycatchers, which is a type of bird around here in New York that was routinely on the backs of our sheep. And <laughs> I did not know get, that. <laughs> we couldn't get close enough to see, but it really looked like they were they were definitely eating off their backs and and benefiting from that. So and obviously the sheep were too. So yeah, it happens all the time. Wow, beautiful. We're almost out of time, but I do want to end. We started kind of with a philosophical note, and I want to end on that again, too. Um, what's the greatest joy for you in your work every day? Um, you, you work in ecology. That's the study of relationships. Um, from that boy who went camping with his dad to where you are now, an expert in the field of silver pasture and how to integrate animals, trees, and, and forage crops. What's your biggest takeaway so far in life? I think the biggest joy is just getting to getting to interact with these landscapes and see them really change over time and just see my relationship change to them in the sense that I am orchestrating something happening, but I'm not making it happen. The, the, the carbon is sequestered at the end of the day by the trees and the forages and the grasses and the soil, not by me. Um, the fungus are doing the work, the animals are doing the work, the trees are doing the work, but I might set them in, in place and, and next to each other. Um, but it's a very humbling experience. Uh, and ultimately, as I said before, you know, seeing animals uh, explore and be interested and curious in a landscape is one of the biggest satisfying things. Um, they don't really want to be confined and fed one thing day after day, just like none of us want to eat the same food day after day. And I've seen just such a remarkable difference from some of the farms I worked on uh, when I was younger to our animals and the type of life they get to live. And that's that's the best indicator at the end of the day. If the birds are singing and the and the sheep are having a great time, you know, that's I can't do any better than that. So. We can hear the success. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steve. Um, I love your approach. Clearly, your your passion is so palatable and. Um, Yeah, good luck in your work spreading the word on silvo pasture and uh, grass-fed beef plus. I think those are all things that maybe this show can help manifest. Um, I, I know there are consumers out there who would want to support a farm that has gone into the silvo pasture principle management of their lands and um, beautiful work. Thank you so much for making the time today. Thanks for having me. We'll have you back soon. Thanks so much. Take care. Beautiful work. That, again, is Steve Gabriel, the author of Silvo Pasture, a guide to managing grazing animals, forage crops, and trees in a temperate farm ecosystem, really an advocate for the interconnectedness of life and nature. He joined us today from Mecklenburg, New York. The website is either silvopasturebook.com or farminginthewoods.com. Actually, it's not .com, Farming in the Woods is the title of his book, farmingthewoods.com is the website for that book. And also all of that is on wellspringforestfarm.com. We're staying with grass-fed beef, or the equivalent of that, actually, all-organic, regional, yummy, delicious, in-season produce. Here's the consumer update from the produce dock in San Francisco, the weekly consumer tip on what to buy, how to buy it, Uh, what prices are out there, how to store it at home, and what to do with it. Here is What's in Season.
And this week we are not featuring Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce, our weekly segment supporter. That's earlsorganic.com with the produce tip of the week and how to buy it, how to shop for it, how to store it at home and what to do with it. But with one of his key buyers again, who has been on the show before, uh, Jonathan Kitchens. Jonathan, do we have you on the line? Yes, I'm here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's so great. Um, I'm really looking forward to this segment because you have a very, very unique perspective. When we looked at what we would cover this week, it wasn't a produce item. It's actually your expertise. You have started to work for Earl's as a buyer uh, in, in wholesale now for how many weeks or months? Uh few months i started right around the beginning of the year great and we are now in may but what's really interesting to me is your your time before you were actually on the retail side you worked at a uh, small independently owned natural food store in marin county just north of the golden gate bridge north of san francisco and for many years and were the buyer there I wanted to hear from you what you've learned in that time. How was that consumer education engagement? And now, of course, moving from retail to to wholesale, what door have you unlocked there and what do you understand better now so much more being having really been on both sides at this point of the of the food chain, really, and you're a consumer of food, of course, too. But what can we learn from that? Um, why don't you start with your with your time at the health food store? Um, well, I, I was the produce buyer at the Good Earth uh, Natural Food Store in Fairfax and helped open uh, the newer store in Mill Valley uh, about a year ago now, a year and a half ago. Maybe that's two years ago. I don't even know. It's gone by so yes. fast. <laughs> But, um, you know, I was a fan of Good Earth. Actually, in the 90s, I worked in the produce district here in San Francisco at, for a company called The Box, Bay Area Organic Express. And my girlfriend, who also worked there, wife now, and I would take the bus and even hitchhike from San Francisco out to Fairfax. Seemed so far out there. <laughs> Just to shop and, there. Um, we would shop there because it was my favorite place. It was 100% organic. We were both totally committed. And we ended up moving to Fairfax in 2011, and I just knew that that was where I was going to work and ended up becoming the produce buyer and really just love the, the standards there. You know, not just the standards for quality, but the standards for vetting every single ingredient and in every single grocery item, bulk item, produce, where it's coming from, a very, very highly educated uh, shopper base. So I learned a lot from the customers, and I hope that I offered them a lot too. And I was... I was buying from Earl's, and I, so I, I was also a fan of Earl's for the same exact reasons. Quality, <laughs> standards, commitment to the grower, huge. How, so, um, so, yeah. Yes, so you, you were touching on that. It, um, Good Earth has is one of the few stores. Now maybe there are you know, a handful that I know of, but really it was the first all-organic produce department. Every single item at one point. Uh, became organic, and I think mushrooms were the kind of the last and really hard to come by, and even that was accomplished at that point. And ever since, it is a hundred percent 
um, organic produce department. How was that for you buying? What was the good, the bad, and the ugly when you worked with wholesalers or directly with Earl as a buyer? Was that always easy and fun because of Earl's high standards as well, or what did you what did you what did you need to learn as a buyer for Good Earth in that time? Well, it's funny. I had I came into um, health food and organics through punk and hardcore music, so I had a very rigid, dogmatic view of the food system that wasn't necessarily in line with the truth. You know, I thought that there were the bigger farms were to be avoided, and I was. I had a mission, you know, I was always sure. supporting CSAs and that the smaller growers were to be supported, but it's really a very complex, complicated food system. And the, the so-called bigger growers aren't in, aren't, uh, their heart is in it often just as much as the smaller grower. So that was, that, that truth, seeing how things really work is, was uh, the most beneficial lesson I learned there. Oh, that's so valuable to hear that, honestly, because we we do in this in this movement of ideals, we go for the gold crown, and we we forget that it needs the whole system, right? It needs all of it. Yeah. You can't just be your yourself supporting half acre hand dug where every worm has a name maybe that is an ideal <laughs> we can achieve or or um, you know try to achieve, but Uh, we have an amazing system, and you're right. The 40-acre grower is not any better than the 200-acre grower of organic food and uh, maybe as completely as dedicated, uh, independent of the size. And it's not industrial agriculture where we have a monocrop on a million acres of corn or wheat or soy. And we sometimes seem to forget that in this pursuit of, of the best, of excellence. That's right. What I mean, I'm the hearing. heart of organic is soil health. Yeah. And that's that's the most important part for me is is supporting the grower and so that they're supporting soil health which is, you know, the skin of the earth and if that's uh two thousand like what you said, if it's two thousand acre carrot grower or if it's somebody that has six Meyer lemon trees and they got certified, it's it's a, it's a important to support everybody. Yeah. And Earl does that too here. You know, if, a, if there's not a scale that we don't um look for, you know, if we we're buying truckloads of Valencia's, and we're also buying 20 cases of blueberries. So yeah, let's let's talk about that. The, it's a really beautiful contribution you just made just to, to expand people's view on if we just go for the top, we, we are missing the entire pyramid that is supporting this kind of lifestyle and health and And, and alignment with nature, whether it's 200 or 2,000 or 20 acres or one acre. Um, switching now to wholesale, um, having literally the opposite side of the, uh, of the coin from a food chain perspective, what's the key lesson that, you've, that you find so far, five months into it, um, in your work? I mean, again, it's a it's a it's a scale uh, issue. Uh, you know, a lot of what I'm learning here is trucking and shipping and logistics, um, packing. You know, help a lot of uh, younger growers. You know, helping them learn how to pack properly into a into a box that um, layers correctly on a pallet, and how to efficiently pack a pallet so that they get the most out of their freight. And those kind of bigger logistic issues are, 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 are like as important as the produce at this level. Mm -hmm. So that we, we, I mean, my goal 
and I'm sure it's Earl's too, is get the grower the most amount of money and the end user the most amount of nutrition. And there's a lot in between. So it's, and everything we have here at Earl's, you know, it's coming in and it's gone in two days. It's so fast. So, you know, and I'm not a good earth. I was very connected to the shopper. And here it's like we have a sales team. So I'm, I'm more like I'm selling to the sales team. I'm educating them, or we're doing it together about this this week's blueberries, or what's what's the forecast for cherries, and it's just so much more zoomed out. Meta yeah. view. fascinating how complex it really is. One would think that if you're a good grower of vegetables or or, or fruit, um, if you have a great crop, you will make money and you might lose money by not knowing how to market it right, how to ship it right, how to store it right, how to do post-harvest handling, uh, everything right. about it. And you're saying that is almost or maybe entirely as important for a farm, for the success of a farm, as as the growing and the, the tending to the soil and the crop itself. And fascinating that, yeah, I, I don't think the average consumer how could they, um, knows the intricacies of of the food system that if you don't pack a pallet right for a wholesaler to pick up your produce, you lose money. And right. the margin is so small anyway, even if you try to give them the most money, that, uh, you know, it's not easy to be a farmer. One bad uh, month or crop or some blossoms washed out, you won't have a crop for that year, and you, over 10 years, need to make that work somehow. So it's important that we that we embrace all of it and keep educating all sides. That's kind of what I hear your message is. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> this is so neat. Um, you're pretty much the only person that has worked in, that I know in retail has switched to wholesale um, and is in the Bay Area and has these two amazing perspectives. And shout out to uh, Good Earth, of course, my absolute favorite store and um, to your work and to Earl's. That's again, earlsorganic.com. That's Jonathan Kitchens. Thank you, Jonathan, for, Jonathan, for making time today. Really pleasure to have you. Yeah, it's my pleasure too. Thanks again. Take Talk care. soon. Take care. Bye-bye. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you also to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. And Utterly, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Every garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. Also, Earl's Organic Produce, 
a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? Anyone can buy directly from Earl's Organic at wholesale prices. The website is earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives. Family-owned and operated since 1980, Fry Vineyards, Mendocino County award-winning wines. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. Lastly, thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at anorganicconversation and on Twitter at TalkOrganic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then.